Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ambassador Gary Locke. Throughout much of his career, Gary Locke has broken a lot of glass ceilings. First Chinese-American governor of a U.S. state, first Chinese-American secretary of commerce, and first Chinese-American ambassador to China. During his inaugural trade mission as governor of Washington state to his family's ancestral village in southern China in 1997, Locke and his extended family were treated as rock stars. At the time, Chinese people and leaders were understandably proud of the accomplishments of the Locke clan in America. But a decade and a half later, as Locke prepared to leave his post as U.S. ambassador, some officials in Beijing had become disillusioned with an ambassador that was much more American than Chinese. One of the incidents that the Chinese leadership was not pleased about was the public spat over the handling of a Chinese blind legal activist named Chun Guangcheng. In May 2012, Chun escaped house arrest in his home village and made his way to Beijing just as Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was to arrive for an annual bilateral meeting. Here's her recounting of that event a few years after the incident. I get called, uh, you know, late, late one night about Chen, who has escaped from house arrest, quite remarkably since he's blind, had broken his foot in the escape, had been picked up, and was seeking uh, asylum uh, in our embassy in Beijing and was on his way there. Eventually, Chen was permitted to travel to the United States, but Ambassador Locke's public involvement in an embarrassing high-profile dissident case tarnished his image for some in the Beijing leadership. In his conversation with me, Locke talks about his family history, about trade negotiations, and about practical improvements he made as U.S. ambassador, which benefited the peoples of both countries, including the pollution metric he's famous for throughout China. Ambassador Gary Locke, thanks so much for taking time. So great to see you. You look um, refreshed and wonderful after your time leaving the embassy in Beijing. Before getting to your time in the Obama administration, I just wanted to start with your experience growing up in Washington State, in a Chinese American household. Um, your father was a domestic worker. You guys spoke some Cantonese at home. Can you just describe what, what your childhood was like here? Well, actually, it's, it's great to be back in the state of Washington. We oftentimes call this the real Washington. Uh, the air is clean, the environment is just terrific, uh, so many outdoor things to do. And um, uh, it, it's a cosmopolitan city, but also a small town city, and, and so, it's easy to do things uh, here in the Seattle area, and it's a great place to live, work, and to raise a family. Uh, growing up, I really didn't know that much about China. My, my father was born in China, but it was actually my grandfather who came over near the turn of the uh, 20th century, uh, in the late 1800s, uh, to work as a uh, servant for a family in the state capital, washing dishes, sweeping floors, and doing the laundry in exchange for English lessons. Um, and then he eventually moved up to Seattle uh, but, uh, and worked in a hospital as a chef. But he, he, you know, after leaving Olympia, uh, the state capital, he went back to China, got married. And so that's where my father was born. But then grandfather came back to the United States to continue to work, sending fa- money back to the family village to support the family. And eventually the head of the hospital, the founder of the hospital, encouraged my grandfather to go back uh, to uh, southern China, Guangdong province, uh, the Toisan or Taishan area, and to bring the family over. So my dad came over along with some aunts and uncles uh, when my dad was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, learned English here, joined the United States Army before the outbreak of World War II, served in the, um, in the 5th Armored Division, was part of the Normandy invasion, uh, and then uh, the, the march uh, to, uh, to Berlin. Uh, under I, General Patton. I know for some Japanese Americans, they were not allowed to serve in the Pacific. For Chinese Americans, was there any prohibition on serving in the Pacific, or he just happened to be sent to Europe because his unit went to Europe? 
No, he he happened to be sent to to Europe. Uh, uh, he was in the Fifth Armored Division, mm -hmm. and, and so that's where they went. Normandy. And uh, he was involved in some of the most vicious battles in the race to Berlin to try to beat the Russians to Berlin. Uh, but uh, and then after the war was over, he went back to Hong Kong, met my mom, they got married, and came right back. And so all of us were born here in Seattle. Um, but my only recollection of, of our Chinese culture and heritage was obviously speaking Chinese. I didn't learn English until I went to kindergarten. Spoke a very rural dialect, a little bit of Cantonese, uh, but really a, a rural dialect that is almost foreign to most other uh, people in China. Uh, but we had a lot of uh, relatives coming over, and Dad and Mom were always putting them up in the house mm -hmm. and helping mm -hmm. them get situated uh, um, for months at a time until they uh, got settled on their own, always sending money back to the family village. And mm -hmm. I never understood that until finally, uh, after I was governor, our whole family at the end of a trade mission went back to the family mm -hmm. village. And my mom and dad had not been back to China since their wedding 50 years, exactly 50 years before. Wow. And it was very nostalgic and very emotional mm -hmm. for them to go back to the village. But for all of us to really understand that all of our success here in America, including mine, including my political success, was really made possible by the contributions and the sacrifices of everyone in the village who chipped in their money to support people and help people uh, make the voyage uh, to the United States. And so I understood wh now why, uh, why dad and mom were always sending money back to the village mm -hmm. to support the village. I want to talk uh, about your time as governor, but you, since you brought up your trip to China, I'm just curious if you could kind of set the stage of what it was like. It must have been, as you said, quite emotional to go with your extended family back to the uh, ancestral village. How were you received and what had they set up for you there? Uh, I was elected uh, in 1996, sworn in, in in 1997. And at the end of that first year in the fall, October of 1997, um, I made a trade mission, uh, had a trade mission to Japan and to China. Uh, and the, my brothers and sisters and mom and dad met me in China uh, on those last few days of our trade mission. And then when the trade mission was officially over, we departed from Hong Kong, took the hydrofoil up the Pearl River uh, to the uh, Toisan area of uh, Guangdong province, which is basically halfway between Hong Kong and Guangzhou, mm -hmm. uh, a huge, huge, uh, cosmopolitan city and uh, we were just mobbed when we arrived there was a almost like a, a ticker tape parade mm -hmm. wow. uh, through part of the big city of millions of people and then suddenly we arrived almost at the edge of the city it, it's suddenly there's farmland and rice paddies um, and there were kids uh, greeting us uh, the entire length of the roadway uh, on, on waving pom-poms. They'd been out there for hours in the sweltering heat. I felt really bad for them. Um, but uh, it was about a, a mile uh, road, a mile-long road to the family village. Mm -hmm. and it was like, st once we got to the village, it was like stepping back into the 1800s. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the house where grandfather and great-grandfather were born. So the house was still, was born. Oh, still yeah. there, not turned down. The house down. was still there, oh. and it was occupied, lived in by my dad's uncle. Well, mm -hmm. um, so still in the family. Still in the family. And uh, in, in honor of our occasion, they put in a toilet, but the toilet basically emptied out into the sidewalk, so nobody really used that toilet. Wow. In honor of our visit, they, wow. they brought in a pipe mm -hmm. of cold water. Mm -hmm. But they cook using wood kindling and coal briquettes uh, in the back of the house. There's maybe a light bulb, one light bulb hanging from each ceiling. Refrigerators the size of what you would see in a college dorm or maybe in a hotel room, mm -hmm. which is why there's so much spoilage of food in China. I mean, where would China get all the electricity it would need um, for 40% for of the population who live in the countryside like uh, our family village? Uh, where would they get the electricity for electric stoves, a dishwasher, or even a washing machine? Because they wash everything by hand, um, which is why China has such enormous needs. But anyway, uh, it was a very, very emotional trip. During and the rest of the trip uh, through Beijing and, and uh, Shanghai and other parts of China as part of the trade mission, I mean, we were just mobbed. We mm -hmm. were just mobbed everywhere we went. And you were the first Chinese-American governor of a U.S. state, and so... How do you think both the Chinese leadership, but also the, the Lao Baixing, the kind of average Chinese people saw you, and 
why were you being mobbed, do you think, and how were you perceived? We were mobbed because I think uh, it, because of the pride of the Chinese people that a Chinese American uh, could be elected to such a high office in America. The first Asian American elected governor anywhere on the mainland, obviously Hawaii with a huge Asian population has had uh, Asian American governors, uh, and clearly the first Chinese American governor in U.S. history in any state. So it was a source of pride, um, and uh, I, I understand that the family village had a celebration as soon as they received the news that I had been elected. Um, people even had some campaign T-shirts. I don't know where they got those campaign T-shirts, uh, but uh, it was it was viewed as a source of pride. And because America has always been held up as that land of opportunity, uh, of uh, of freedom and hope, uh, and it was. Um, my election was vindication that uh, the Chinese could succeed in America and was really represented the culmination of the journey of generations after generations of Chinese who have come to America in pursuit of that American dream. That was a time before China had joined the World Trade Organization and so there was still this positive momentum that China's trade barriers were going to come down and that would help U.S. exports and services and ranchers and, and farmers. Well, yes, this was well before uh, uh, the legislation uh, uh, giving a China permanent uh, normal trading status as well as prior to uh, the vote in the Congress uh, uh, allowing China to join the WTO. On the WTO, you were governor, I think, when the ministerial was here in 97, is that right, when there were protests here? Uh, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit. This isn't specifically on China, but you know, China's entrance to the WTO and whether or not the WTO is a good enough mechanism to regulate international trade, it all kind of wraps together in some way. Uh, that was a kind of anti-globalization backlash. Could you talk a little bit about that time for folks who kind of don't remember that, that uh, back then there were people who didn't think the WTO was uh, the sort of organization that the, that should be promoted at a ministerial here in Seattle. Well, right. Uh, there was a, there was a uh, uh, WTO ministerial here in Seattle, uh, and unfortunately it was hijacked by a, a bunch of anarchists uh, from other parts of the states uh, that came here uh, that uh, barricaded the convention center where the ministerial was being held riots in the streets, and unfortunately the anarchists were destroying uh, windows of nearby shops and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously there, there were concerns about China's entrance to the WTO, but more importantly it was a protest by organized labor and clergy and um, uh, uh, other interest groups about globalization in general. But unfortunately the anarchists somehow captivated uh, this sentiment and and created uh, gave a really bad impression and I think uh, uh, hurt the reputation of those who were legitimately concerned about globalization and so there was a, in fact uh, at the time that the anarchists were occupying the downtown streets and barricading the convention center and not allowing the ministerial to actually open uh, there was a a march of organized labor clergy and others concerned about globalization uh, proceeding toward the downtown area and uh, we tried to have them change their route so that the two forces would not come together because obviously one group was very very peace loving and very law abiding had legitimate concerns they wanted to express uh, but we were concerned that if they got close to the um, uh, uh, anarchists then the police and the authorities would not know uh, could not differentiate between the, the two groups and and uh, unfortunately, we were concerned that uh, arrests would be made of wrong individuals, of innocent uh, bystanders and people who are peacefully uh, expressing their views. Or someone might get hurt, right? I guess looking back 20 years, were the protesters, not the anarchists, but were the protesters right about the dangers of globalization? Yes and no. Obviously, uh, globalization is a fact. It's, it's, a, it's a reality. It cannot be changed. I think the, the dangers or the, the shortcomings of globalization is that uh, policymakers have not done enough to address the disruption that globalization causes uh, 
within communities uh, or among uh, the affected workers in terms of really uh, focusing on job training and retraining and educational skills and or even helping uh, companies that are here in the United States export more and uh, uh, be uh, able to take advantage of the opening markets around the world. 95% of the world's consumers live outside the United States and so if we want American companies to grow and expand and hire more people, we need to help those American companies sell their great made in USA products and services to more people around the world. Earlier I talked about the, the, the really tough conditions of our family village uh, in China. That's how 40% of the people of China live. 40% of the people of China live in similar villages uh, to our family village with very little uh, sanitation uh, or modern appliances or electricity, uh, no washing machines, no electric stoves, uh, cooking using wood kindling, using an outhouse a hundred yards away, uh, having maybe just a pipe of cold water coming into the, into the house. China has enormous needs and American products uh, and services can really help provide a higher standard of living for the people of China from technology to medical care to environmental cleanup and the list goes on and on. So I think that uh, globalization will occur but we need to do a better job at helping companies and especially workers and communities adjust to that. Um, on the issue of trade, I think Washington State on a GDP basis, does it trade more than any other state in the United States in terms of exports? It has more exports? Uh, Washington State is the most trade-dependent state in America, with one out of almost every three jobs depending uh, directly and indirectly on trade, whether imports and exports, as well as the, the jobs that are supported by those who are engaged directly in trade. Uh, and certainly we export more than any other state, period. Before moving to your time in the Obama administration, I just wanted to end your time in governor when you hosted, uh, you hosted a number of Chinese visitors that would come, and I'm sure they were all wanted to try to get meetings with you when they came through. But uh, the one I wanted to ask you about was when Hu Jintao came in 2006. He was the president and the general secretary of the Communist Party. Can you talk from what you remember about that trip and, and how, that, how that went? When President Hu Jintao uh, came to the United States in 2006, I was no longer governor, but I was actually asked by uh, the Chinese government to help uh, lead uh, the effort uh, uh, surrounding his stopover uh, in Seattle uh, on his way to Washington, D.C. And so I chaired the, the planning committee, and uh, we had uh, representatives from uh, business and cultural and, and citizen and, and civic groups involved, and it was a great, great uh, event. We really wanted to make sure that he could get a flavor of what American life was like, as opposed to... Outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the real America, like I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, but also get a glimpse of the American people and f uh, to have him interact with uh, uh, American citizens, because once he gets to D.C., these are all formal government meetings. Um, and so we really wanted to give him a glimpse of, of American life and what I say is the better Washington, uh, and to um, also let the American people see him. Um, uh, and so uh, originally it was planned uh, in 2005, in the fall of 2005, around Labor Day, and we thought, wow, it would be great to have him stop in, uh, stop by and see uh, an American Labor Day picnic and experience a hot dog mm -hmm. and, and uh, a potato salad and, and everything else. Uh, uh, but the, the trip was canceled at the very last minute, just as he was about to board an airplane because of Hurricane Katrina. And President Bush at the time indicated that he was just too preoccupied in his administration, was too concerned and preoccupied with Hurricane Katrina um, than to... Uh, host, have an official uh, uh, state visit and host a, uh, put on an official state visit for the president of China. So it was postponed until the spring of 2006, but we were able to do that, and uh, it was a great, great time. It was a great time, and I think he had a, uh, uh, enjoyed himself meeting Boeing workers and uh, visiting schools, uh, visiting, uh, seeing some uh, school uh, children who were learning Chinese, visiting Microsoft campus, uh, and uh, 
having a huge um, official banquet in which we had uh, even Henry Kissinger and and uh, uh, many um, distinguished uh, current and past government officials attending. So when you joined the Commerce Department in 2009, it was kind of in the middle of the worst financial crisis since the Depression. <clears throat> Could you just paint a picture of first how you ended up in the Commerce Department and kind of connected with the Obama administration, but then also what it was like your first day in the Hoover, Hoover, Hoover building, thinking, oh my gosh, the, you know, the U.S. economy is going off a cliff. You know, what can we do to, to address that? Well, I, I never thought that I would be joining the Obama administration because uh, earlier on uh, I was uh, one of the Washington State co-chairs for Hillary Clinton. and uh, But I had made it very clear to uh, uh, then-Senator uh, Obama that uh, were he to s uh, secure the nomination, uh, to secure all the delegate votes, uh, once it was clear that uh, he did that, that he could count on my full support. And so after he basically... Uh, uh, got the nomination even before the convention. I was out there campaigning for him once it was very clear that, that he had beaten Hillary Clinton. And uh, so I never expected a phone call from him uh, to even interview uh, for a position in his cabinet. But um, uh, it was quite the honor to receive that call and to serve in the Commerce Department. I think uh, he chose me for that position uh, given my experience uh, on trade uh, uh, as a governor. Uh, as well as being a manager. Uh, there were many, many other parts of the Commerce Department uh, that had uh, initiatives underway that were very difficult, very complex, uh, and in some ways in trouble, whether it's the t at that time the 2010 census, mm -hmm. which was pr projected by all the different uh, government watchdog agencies as a very troubled uh, project, uh, to uh, uh, implementing stimulus uh, programs uh, for uh, grants, multi-billion dollar grants for high-speed internet access uh, to communities, uh, urban and rural, uh, to uh, fisheries issues, uh, and of course trying to reform and speed up the patent process, uh, which was uh, woefully uh, backlogged. Um, and the Patent and Trademark Office as part of the that, Department that's of right, Commerce. That's right. Uh, there's so many functions of the Commerce Department, and of course just trying to help businesses get back on their feet. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was grants, economic development grants to help, uh, for instance, uh, uh, a community improve their port, uh, uh, their port system, uh, or helping a, a, a town double the size of their water treatment facilities so that uh, a company, an existing company, could grow, or uh, so that it could handle the business and the water needs of a new company that was planning on locating. Uh, sometimes it was taking us 20 months to, to uh, give out these grants, anywhere from 5 to $15 million. And we said, my gosh, 20 months to, to allocate money that could c help create jobs, this is unacceptable. So we were able to streamline that process down to 17 days. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in terms of, of commerce, actual commerce, uh, we had a motto at the, at the department, the more that American companies export, the more they produce. The more they produce, the more workers they need, and that means jobs, jobs for the American people. So one of our uh, major projects was to open doors uh, around the world for American companies to help them uh, find customers and buyers for their great made-in-USA products and services. <clears throat> one of the mechanisms that the United States and China set up to address exports and trade barriers was the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade. And at the time that you were the Secretary of Commerce, that must have been about 20-plus years into it. Uh, could you just describe as a cabinet secretary who was one of the co-leads on the U.S. side, set the table for us, what does it look like? How did, how did you uh, see your role in that and kind of promote U.S. market access and U.S. products and services? Well, these are annual meetings that are held between high-level U.S. and Chinese government officials, and each year the, the venue rotates, uh, alternates between uh, China and the United States. Uh, they are basically the culmination of months of, months of uh, discussions, uh, negotiations uh, by lower-level uh, government officials uh, representing so many different agencies from the Commerce Department, Agriculture, U.S. Trade Representative, Energy Department, and, and so many others. Um, and really trying to uh, 
remove some of the barriers and the regulatory barriers, the policy issues separating uh, our two countries that uh, inhibit uh, trade. Whether it's visa, how long it takes to get a visa, the length of the the, the length of the validity of the visa, to what's stopping or uh, uh, hindering exports of agricultural commodities from the United States to China, or uh, the purchase by China of high-tech goods, uh, to uh, China wanting to sell certain items into the United States, and so trying to figure out uh, how to remove those regulatory barriers or, or even what legislation might be necessary to enable uh, greater trade uh, to occur. Uh, th- those were the topics uh, of these uh, discussions and then they would culminate in these high-level meetings of about two or three days and hopefully we would be able to reach an agreement uh, on them. Uh, in some ways they were very, very frustrating as well because oftentimes when you got to the final meetings, uh, each side would be basically reading to each other position papers. Could you just describe what the yeah. meeting room looks like for, for uh, people who haven't kind of seen it or experienced it? It's a it? huge, long, long table in which the Americans are sitting, seated on one side and the Chinese are on the other side and then behind each of the sides are all their staffs uh, with information and papers and and greater details. Uh, and, and we have all these topics that are set out in advance and the, and the speakers uh, designated in advance, but in many ways, they're just, we're just stating our positions to the other side, our demands, our ask, uh, our responses to the other side, and, it, and we're just basically reading to each other and not really engaging in true dialogue or negotiation. Uh, and that was c- very frustrating, I think, clearly to the I, to both sides to both sides and so oftentimes we would have to meet on the side or something to really try to if we could crack the nut and to really make some real progress so at the negotiating table 50 plus aside maybe with another 50 in the back bench but then to actually get the ball moving you'd have a sidebar you'd have a pull aside before lunch or after lunch at some other break and say, okay, what's, you know, what can we do for biotech approvals or what can we do to really get soybeans in the market or whatever the, the issue was? Because the, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, because a lot of the discussions on, let's say, soybeans or let's say on, on uh, opening up China to beef exports from America, uh, there would be agreements made or steps made uh, advance, uh, advancing the issue but, and sometimes agreements were made, uh, but sometimes we'd hit a roadblock. And despite the discussions by our lower level um, counterparts in the various agencies, we just couldn't get very far. And so at, at these JCCT formal meetings, the United States would present its position, its ask, its demand, and the Chinese would simply state their position. And so it was really, you know, it was more of a, a formality in terms of where we are as opposed to really trying to um, get the ball across the goal line. Very orchestrated, like a Peking opera almost. If you do your part, <laughs> I do my yeah. part, and then, yeah. you know, we, we, we break for lunch. So when you were an ambassador and you would go off to Jiangsu or pick, pick your province, here is the party secretary or the vice governor of the province meeting a Chinese American ambassador who didn't speak Chinese. How did you think? How, how did they react, or how did that how did that conversation go? For a lot of times. Well, I remember uh, meeting with one very very prominent uh, party secretary uh, of a province, uh, and in China you have both the governor of a province and the party secretary, the communist government official. The communist government official is a higher ranking person than the governor. And then in the Chinese system, they oftentimes switch. So you might actually be a a, a party secretary uh, of a big city in China, and then your next assignment is to be the governor of the province. Uh, And then your next assignment after that might be to be the party secretary of another uh, province. And unlike uh, the United States where 
government officials basically come from the community. I mean, I'm elected governor of the state of Washington. That's because I'm a resident of the state of Washington. The mayor of Denver is a longtime resident of Denver. In China, these top government officials are almost like military commanders. They're basically assigned to a post or a base, mm -hmm. uh, and they go from one base or one post to another. Uh, mayor one day, party secretary of a totally different city uh, the next day. And the Vice minister after right that in Beijing. after that. Yeah. So yes. uh, uh, you're, you're assigned all these different positions. I remember meeting one prominent uh, party secretary of a major province, and uh, I met him for the first time as ambassador, and all of his top uh, uh, subordinates and assistants were just so over the top and, and thrilled to be meeting me. And we overheard him saying and reminding uh, his colleagues that, now remember, just because he's Chinese doesn't mean he's one of us. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier that there was a lot of expectation on me uh, and perhaps unrealistic expectations on me by the Chinese people because of my Chinese ancestry. They really felt that I would be taking the position of China in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think it was good, or certainly the, I think it, the fact that I did not speak Mandarin. Mm -hmm. I knew a little bit of Cantonese and Toisanese from growing up, but the fact that I did not speak the official language of Mandarin, which is very different from Cantonese, by the way, the fact that I did not speak Mandarin reinforced mm -hmm. in the minds of the Chinese government officials mm -hmm. and the Chinese people that I am really a representative of America, mm -hmm. that I represent the American people, the American government, and President Obama. That's a very good way to put it. There's, <clears throat> for your time at the embassy, there's kind of three things that I think you're known for. One was the reduction in visa wait times. One was the highlighting of the air quality and PM 2.5, which you made a ubiquitous term that every Chinese person now knows. Um, and then there was the, uh, the, the release of the blind legal activist, Chung Wong Chung. I wonder if we could just go through some of those and, and what you see as kind of accomplishments or challenges from your time, maybe starting with the, the visa wait times and, and why you focused on that and you felt like that was an important thing to, to work on. Well, I've actually been very concerned about uh, visas for the Chinese to the United States for quite some time. And I remember even shortly after the September 11th attack against the United States, how then uh, Harvard president Larry Summers was concerned about it and wrote a letter to then Secretary of State Colin Powell saying that the difficulty of foreign students to get visas was actually hurting the interest of America. That uh, that by encouraging more and making it uh, possible for more foreign students to come to the United States uh, to study, th uh, that they could then see our democracy and our diversity and uh, the hopes and dreams of America and understand our political system that so that hopefully when they went back to their home countries, we will have created in them this appetite for more openness and democracy and liberalization that they could then, as future leaders of their own countries from around the world, uh, help spread uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and hasten. Uh, and then as governor, I used to hear of, of the times in which our companies in Washington would invite a Chinese business person to come visit their facility, their factory, to possibly buy that Washington, made in Washington state product, and how they could not get, how that Chinese person could not get a visa. And then as Commerce Secretary, I heard it again, uh, how long it took for the Chinese individual to wait for a visa interview. Visitors from most countries around the world have to have a visa to come to the United States, but in order to get that visa, you have to have an in-person interview. And people sometimes have to travel thousands of miles, depending on the country in which they live, to the consulate or embassy for that short interview with no guarantee that you'll get the visa. And we were hearing that it was taking up to 100 days for a Chinese business person or tourist to get a visa interview to come to the United States. And we were saying in the Commerce Department, my gosh, if I'm a Chinese business person, I'm told that 
to get a visa to go to that Ohio factory to, to look at that American product, I have to wait 100 days before I can get my interview with no guarantee I get the interview. Why should I go to Ohio then? I, I can go get a visa faster to go to Australia or France or Canada. I don't have to buy that American widget. I can buy from some other company in another country. And so we in the Commerce Department were saying, my gosh, that's costing us American jobs. Again, the more that American companies export to another country, the more they produce, the more they produce, the more workers they need, and that means jobs, good paying jobs for the American people. So when I got to Beijing, I said, hey, we've got we to fix this. We <laughs> really have to fix this. And my folks told me, well, unless there's more money for overtime, or unless we hire more visa interview uh, personnel, and if we have more personnel, we've got to have more interview windows, and those cost a lot of money to build these high-tech, soundproof interview bays. Uh, and I said, my gosh, we're never going to get this money. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a recession. We're not going to get the money from the State Department. And even the State Department says yes, the president's budget office can say no. And even if the president says yes, the Congress will probably say no. And it'll take years and years and years. This is unacceptable. Well, uh, we got it down to five days within a month and a half. And a few months later, we got it down to three days uh, just by uh, just process uh, improvements and re-examining how we do things. We still ha- people still have to take the interviews. We don't uh, shortchange or shortcut the, the length of the interview, but we're just more efficient uh, in how we do the scheduling. And then shortly after I arrived, I said, wait, why are we, why do we only have one-year visas mm-hmm. for each side? The Americans, if they want to go to China, your visa is only good for a year, then you got to reapply for a visa, and the same thing with the Chinese. It's inefficient. Why don't we have multi-year visas? And so I approached the, the the Chinese government on saying, "Hey, we ought to get together and have five or five-year visas." And ultimately, just as I left, uh, we reached an agreement in which uh, we, each side will have ten-year visas. Uh, and President Obama was able to announce that uh, after I had left, but uh, on his visit to China, to great to great fanfare. I mean, it makes sense. It's more predictable for both Chinese business people, Chinese tourists, American uh, business people, and American tourists, and it saves the government money. Okay. You don't have to uh, process these visas every single year. PM 2.5. <laughs> Can you just, I know for a lot of the embassy staff, they really look to your efforts and, and Dan Crittenbrink, who's now our ambassador to Vietnam's efforts to highlight the issue of air quality and the challenges of staff working in Beijing for it, but also it ended up having a much wider effect in kind of Chinese society in which, and Chinese government circles in which, because the embassy had an air monitor that was putting out numbers every hour, it was clear to everyone what what the numbers actually were. Could you just talk a little bit about that uh, entire episode? But also, I, I seem to recall some Chinese official asked us to take down the reporting of it because it made the Chinese government look bad. Maybe you could kind of highlight that a little bit as well. Uh, this is one of the, the great accomplishments of, of uh, the United States government and the embassy, and I'm really proud to have been part of that. And uh, it was an incredible team effort and a, and a team uh, project. Uh, I've heard from many leading environmental organizations in the United States saying that what we did in terms of air quality and the monitoring of air quality first in Beijing and then to other Chinese citizens profoundly changed the demand, the trajectory, the commitment uh, of China toward cleaner energy and uh, improving air quality. Uh, And that that PM 2.5 monitoring machine single-handedly changed uh, for the better uh, the actions of the Chinese people and the Chinese government. So I'm I'm really proud of that. what we did is we, we put a, a monitor, a machine, on the top of the embassy roof to uh, measure the air quality uh, and to make that information available to not just the embassy employees but to all Americans in Beijing. Uh, and at first we put that 
disseminated the information in the infirmary or the health clinic. Well, not everybody goes into the health clinic, so every day, every hour, and so uh, we've determined that, uh, our staff determined that we need to use our website and put it on our website. And, and why did we broadcast it on our website to the entire American community, in fact, the Chinese population, as opposed to just making an internal uh, dissemination uh, on the internet? Because there's actually a U.S. law that says that if, you, if the embassy has information pertaining to the health and safety of its workers, it has to release that to the entire American community. I mean, if we know that, let's say, that there's radioactive air or there's, there's a, a, you know, a disease, uh, a highly communicable disease um, in, the, in the community, we just can't keep it uh, to the American workers. Well, what about the Americans who are employees of other companies, whether it's Microsoft, Boeing, GE, Amazon, or American students or American tourists in the community, they need to have that information as well. And so that's why we put it on our website and broadcast it. Well, the Chinese were also seeing it. And there are some bloggers uh, in, China, in Beijing who are very influential, who have millions of followers, who are also concerned about the environment. So they would retweet uh, on their equivalent of Twitter, our hourly readings, and suddenly uh, the Chinese people were saying, oh my gosh, this is really severe. This is really uh, uh, indication of how bad the air quality is in Beijing. Why isn't the Chinese government doing this? And the Chinese government then responds and says, well, we are collecting this information, but we have no plans to make it public for a few years, at which point the Chinese people went ballistic over and says, what are you trying to hide? Uh, and so it actually forced them to start reporting it much earlier, uh, much sooner than they ever thought. And what happened is that shortly after uh, we made all this information public, uh, the, the Chinese government was in fact asking us not to make it public. And we said, sorry, we have this duty uh, to all the Americans living in Beijing. Um, and, and, and a lot of the American parents uh, in Beijing wanted the information because they have kids in school and they go to these international schools. Should the schools allow kids out at recess if the air quality is above uh, a certain a level, if, if it's dangerous? A lot of the schools wanted our information to decide whether or not to cancel a soccer match or a cross-country track meet if the air was bad. Um, and so it became very, very important. And then what happened is that there was, uh, uh, many months later, we had almost a week in which the air quality was so horrible you could barely see across the street. And our, our readings reliably go up to 500. And I think the World Health Organization says that air quality, the PM 2.5 reading, if it's over about 100, 150 is unhealthy. And that's what the schools would look to. But during this particular week, our machines registered 800. And finally, the, the, the newspapers, the communist government newspapers, in their editorials said, we can no longer pretend this is fog. We have a serious air pollution problem, and it's killing people in China, affecting their health. We need to do something about it. And so that was a major turning point. Um, and um, then we, we said, wait a second, we're doing this in Beijing at our embassy, but we also have American personnel in our consulates scattered throughout China. We need to be putting these machines on their rooftops as well and making sure that that is given out to on their websites in Shanghai and Guangzhou and Wuhan and every other place. And that's where we got a lot of pushback from the Chinese government saying, please do not make this information public. And we said, but we have to. Because their concern was that U.S. companies wouldn't locate to these cities or that cities would be perceived as unhealthy or unsafe in some way. And so yes, all of that. And then also the pressure uh, by the Chinese citizens in those communities demanding that uh, their policies uh, change in terms of uh, air quality, the use of coal, cleaner f fuels in gasoline and, and uh, buses, and the list goes on and on. Uh, 
PM 2.5 is measuring particulate matter smaller than 2.5 microns, I think, per cubic meter or something like that. It's a term that most Americans have never, ever, ever heard of. It's the really nasty microscopic stuff that if it gets into your lungs, inhibit, quite frankly, the development of the human lung, especially among young kids. I mean, it's not something that, I, I think something like it, it is uh, the human lung becomes fully developed by you know, age 18, 19, 20, or whatever, and if not fully developed, it cannot, you know, uh, uh, develop later on when you're in the th 20s or 30s. And uh, so um, this was really important information for, for American personnel, in fact, all foreigners living in China, and uh, took on such a life of its own. But anyway, so many people in China, virtually everybody in China knows about PM 2.5. Americans have never heard of it. And so I, I will go around in China, uh, even today, and people will recognize me and they'll come up to me and say, and they don't really speak any English other than to say, she she, PM 2.5, which means thank you, PM 2.5. Um, I wanted to move to 2012 when Secretary Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton was set to come to Beijing for the strategic and economic dialogue, one of these large bilateral dialogues at the ministerial level. And the blind legal activist Chung Guangcheng came to Beijing and ended up being detained and then released. Can you talk a little bit about your role in that and why that was important and how it, how it ended up? Well, Chung Guangcheng was a kind of a barefoot, uh, self-educated lawyer who had taken on unpopular causes uh, in China to the consternation of local government Chinese officials and was jailed, imprisoned. Uh, but after his release, uh, was constantly harassed. And when media and journalists and even celebrity movie stars tried to visit him, uh, they were pre prevented from doing so and in some cases roughed up. Uh, and um, he, uh, his children suffered a lot of abuse. Uh, there, his house was constantly being raided and, 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 mo and his family was monitored. Uh, and so he, he became a cause uh, celeb in, uh, in the human rights uh, community around the world. Somehow he was able to escape his village. He kind of memorized the routine of the people watching him. And some, sometime at night he left his home, uh, crawled over a, a fence, uh, and somehow broke his foot in the process, or injured his foot in the process, made it to a nearby uh, uh, farm, uh, and from there he uh, was uh, able to contact his civil, uh, his human rights uh, colleagues, comrades uh, elsewhere, and they came and picked him up and brought him to Beijing. This was several hundred miles. Where he was was many hundreds of miles from Beijing. But they brought him, and of course, by then, the Chinese government officials knew he had left his village, where he was basically under house arrest. They were on the lookout for him. Uh, and we got a call early one morning saying from his, from his human rights activist friends, saying that they had Chen Guangchun and he needed medical care. Um, and he wanted to come into the embassy. We sent someone out to verify that it was, in fact, Chun Guangchun. We did so. Uh, and then we had to figure out, how do we get him into the embassy? Um, that's, uh, if he tried to walk into the embassy, we have Chinese security guards uh, outside the embassy, and they would have recognized him, they would have stopped him, and they would not have allowed him to come in. So how do we get him in? Um, we contacted Washington, D.C. and went through the highest levels, and finally the decision was made that, yes, we would go out, pick him up in a car, and bring him in. And that, of course, is uh, very uh, controversial in terms of international law and whether that's accepted, uh, uh, acceptable behavior by any foreign government. But anyway, we brought him in, and um, then the Chinese were very, very angry and upset felt that we had improperly, contrary to international law, gone out to take a Chinese person to bring him into the embassy. Uh, and um, the interesting thing is that Chung Guangchun was not seeking political asylum. He was not seeking to come to the United States. He simply wanted, his demand was to be able to live outside of his village 
in another city in another province free of government harassment. And he wanted to stay in China to see the day and continue to work for a more democratic country. That posed a problem because we don't let Chinese people, citizens, dissidents, live in the embassy. First of all, the embassy does not have a residential compound except for the Marine Guards. Um, and um, that became a huge international incident. And so Secretary Clinton, along with members of the administration, Secretary Geithner and many other cabinet officials, uh, uh, national security advisors, and everybody else, they were all planning on coming for very, very high-level talks, very, very high-level talks, and very substantive talks in which things actually got done and things were agreed upon. And hopefully things uh, would uh, change, whether it's on cybersecurity or military issues to uh, uh, trade and, and other topics. Uh, we were then having to try to negotiate with the Chinese government on Chung Guang Chung's request, demand to be able to live in another city. Because unlike in America, most people are not free in China to live in, a, in the city of their, of their choice. I mean, if you're in growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, and you say, hey, I hear that Amazon is hiring people in, in Baltimore or, or Washington, D.C. area. I'm going to go move up to Baltimore or Maryland and get a job in, at, uh, at Amazon. No. Uh, in China, you have to have permission of the government to live in that other city because all of your social educational benefits are tied to the city or province in which you uh, grow up. Uh, and, um, you know, if you do get a good education and you want to go to Beijing or Shanghai, uh, you have to basically register and get the approval of the government in order to live there and to get housing. Anyway, uh, just before Secretary Clinton and the entire delegation arrived, we were able to arrange uh, for him to leave uh, and to uh, leave the village, to leave the embassy, get medical care, and the Chinese government had promised that uh, he would be uh, free to live in, in another city. In fact, uh, live on the campus of a university where he could continue uh, education uh, and he basically get free room and board for himself and his f entire family. So he left, we went to the hospital, we gave him several cell phones. Uh, with those cell phones he contacted his human rights uh, uh, colleagues and comrades who uh, convinced him that he should not trust the Chinese government, at which point he wanted to come to the United States. Uh, but by then we didn't have any negotiating leverage on his behalf because he was now in a Chinese hospital with the Chinese government. The talks were about to begin. Secretary Clinton, to her credit, uh, continued these discussions privately on the side and was able to convince the Chinese to allow him to leave China for the United States. So on that, and then I want to get to your, your, your exit as ambassador. You've been in a lot of different ministerial level meetings. You've been to a lot of provinces. In terms of negotiating with Chinese officials, what do you think works and what doesn't work as well? What are the kind of lessons that you, you've taken away based on now 20 years of going back and forth to China and as ambassador? Well, it's very, very difficult to try to persuade any government to do something that it is not inclined to do. I mean, think about, let's say, representatives of France urging the U.S. State Department or the White House to change their policies on this or that. You know, we in America would say, who are you to tell us what to do? You know, this is our policy. This is how we're planning on doing things, you know, but out. This is how we do things in America. Uh, who are you to tell us or, uh, or urge us to change? In meeting with government officials, it was oftentimes to uh, advance the issues and the interests of American companies whose applications had been languishing for two or three years, and yet their Chinese competitors were getting their applications approved within months. Uh, we were trying to make sure that we were advancing the interests of American companies, individuals, um, uh, policies of the American government um, to people and, and governments and bureaucracies who had their own way of doing things. Um, so you had to be very, very sensitive to their sovereignty, uh, but at the same time try to indicate to them why it was in their 
national interest or their own economic self-interests uh, to modify their behavior, um, whether it was speeding up the applications uh, and treating people fairly to uh, the opportunities for cross-fertilization of ideas and saying, hey, you know, letting these American companies come in, I mean, yes, it'll be competition for the Chinese companies, but it'll also make the Chinese companies, you know, more, uh, more productive, more efficient, improve, you know, competition is good. More competitive. I mean, it, it could actually increase the quality of their product or their service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Chinese, uh, their Chinese customers will benefit from that uh, to, um, to a whole host of issues. Uh, to what it would mean in terms of uh, the daily lives of the Chinese people, let's say with greater cooperation on medical research or making sure that uh, China clamps down on counterfeit uh, chemicals and, and pharmaceuticals that, uh, and, and, and the benefit to the Chinese reputation as well and, and the benefit to the legitimate Chinese companies engaged in making pharmaceuticals. Uh, uh, and so we were always trying to impress upon them the benefits to them, uh, not that this is how America demand, is demanding things. Uh, and clearly um, on very, very sensitive geopolitical issues, whether it's the Japanese islands or the islands in the South China Pacific, et cetera, uh, or the Chow- South China Sea, um, obviously we, the United States government has very strong concerns about it. Uh, the Chinese government knows how we feel about it, but also trying to let them know that their reputation is affected as well. How they're seen internationally, yes. their perception of them as a leader. I wanted to end with your time as ambassador. You hinted at this, at the very high expectations for the first Chinese-American ambassador. I think probably as someone at the embassy at the time reading the commentary by uh, in the Chinese news service, which you were called the unfavorable term banana, uh, was kind of striking and a kind of a new low in my view. How did you, what does that tell you about kind of Chinese society or about kind of Chinese leadership or how they see themselves or how they see the United States? How did you process that kind of a departure? It was kind of unfortunate that here you were, the kind of crowning moment of your time as representing the United States and China, and uh, the Chinese government was kind of. Uh, Xiaoqi kind of small about how they how they dealt with with your departure unfortunately in my view but I wonder how you kind of consider those sorts of things in, well, as yeah, you're there, there was this one Chinese government editorial that uh, called me a banana uh, yellow on the outside white on the inside and good riddance and uh, uh, perhaps the air will be cleaner when I leave etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, I that was part of the propaganda arm of the Chinese government, uh, their, their need uh, to cut me down to size and keep me in, in place. Because throughout the, the last the years before that, throughout our, our time in China, because of the initial early euphoria and incredible publicity we got uh, for, from flying economy class to eating in the restaurants on our own as a family to shopping and buying our own groceries to that Starbucks uh, uh, picture, uh, wearing a back, carrying a backpack. Um, the Chinese government made it very clear to the press that, uh, or we were very aware that the Chinese government wanted to keep us a little bit in check. Uh, that newspaper articles about, let's say, uh, my visit to a Chinese hospital celebrating U.S.-China collaboration partnership on medical research. Uh, that those articles could not be on the front page uh, and that the length of the article had to be limited. Um, and, the, and the Chinese press would say, I'm sorry, you know, this is, this is what, what we've been told, and so please don't be offended. Um, and yet I was able to have access to the highest government officials in China, and many people in the embassy and observers said that the level of access to high-ranking Chinese government officials was unprecedented. Um, so there's one arm of the Chinese government trying to limit my you know, notoriety or my fame or whatever, my, my, my aura, and yet I'm able to meet with just about anybody in the Chinese government. What was really gratifying as I left was, despite that snarky 
editorial by the propaganda arm of the Chinese government. There were so many bloggers who responded to that, mm -hmm. expressing outrage mm. and embarrassment that, that was the position of their own government. Huh. And so from the people themselves, I, I, I felt uh, uh, a lot of support. And, um, and, and I was really touched that so many people would um, comment on that Chinese government editorial uh, and basically coming to my defense and, and uh, um, expressing thanks for what we had done. Governor, Ambassador, Secretary Gary Locke, thank you so much for uh, taking a walk down memory lane and sharing your experiences dealing with China. I really appreciate all your well, time. Well, thank you very much. Let me just say that our experience in China was just so incredible. It was an opportunity for my children to discover uh, the China of their ancestors to, uh, really, and also to really appreciate just how fortunate we are as Americans, the liberties, the freedoms, the diversity uh, that we have, the quality of life that we have in America. Uh, I, I, I know that they will not take what we have in America for granted. Uh, and again, I am uh, very proud of my Chinese culture and heritage, the contributions that China has made to world civilization over thousands and thousands of years, the inventions of the printing press, the compass, the clock, uh, paper, and gunpowder, and everything else. But I'm so proud of what America stands for, our diversity, our openness, our democracy, our political system, our rule of law. And um, uh, it was a great opportunity to serve America the American people and, and President Obama as U.S. Ambassador to China. And so uh, it was a great time in our life and great people uh, and colleagues at the embassy and actually some outstanding government officials uh, in China as well who have really done an amazing thing raising the hundreds of millions of people in China out of the ranks of poverty. Thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Governor Gary Locke speaking with me from Seattle, Washington. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.